0: Hey mentions podcast listen to Neil and Pip we talk learning technology oh oh mentions
1: excellent right Hello everyone, welcome to the Outmentions podcast. We have a very special guest today, an amazing guest who we met at the Out 2019 conference in Edinburgh. We have Tom Farrelly, who we met by the Gaster talk. We did a a Gaster presentation. So Tom straight away offered to come on the podcast, which was absolutely amazing. So we're really grateful to have him on. And we're just going to talk a little bit about his work and also about Gaster as well, of course, and his relationship with uh, ALT as well. So Tom, we're just going to talk a bit about yourself. Really, so you work at the Institute of Technology in Tralee. So, tell us about the work you do.
0: Well, I suppose, like for people who may or may not be sort of familiar with the Institute of Technology, where degree awarding the closest analogy I can say would be like, say, the old polytechnics sense there. Where I work in Tralee, we're a small college, just over 3,000 students. But I suppose it's interesting when you're chatting to a larger institution, it's still the same sort of issues I'm about mainly helping people overcome that fear or reticence or distance around technology and learning. So, for a good few years, I was a social science lecturer, and I still do some lecturing. Around the early mid-2000s, start to move a bit more into blended learning, and one course in particular, a work-based learner, so we needed to have some way of blended learning, and, and they're all working as social care workers, so we couldn't interrupt them as much as possible. So I, along with other people, we devised a program of deliberately starting using Blackboard, and I suppose that's the thing. And, well, sometimes people sort of have a go at BLEs. It does at least provide a framework. So increasingly, I moved more and more into that space and I actually done my doctoral research around BLEs the social aspects of it so um, I said just moving more into a role of being an educational developer at this stage but three-quarters of my work would be education developer support and other people yeah ha- I work with instructional designers so as one of the next colleague of mine Tony Murphy described it as a sense like that you know one person to do the how what buttons to click and I actually tell you why because sometimes I suppose it's very well easy to say oh you click this here you drag this here but why are you doing it and I suppose my philosophy would Be in terms of encouraging more and more staff. I would rather ninety percent of the staff use ten percent of the available technology, rather than the other way around. I think sometimes what happens is that you know someone goes along to some sort of ed tech talk and they feel, oh my god, I'm I'm so stupid and I'll never get this. And what do you mean augmented reality? That's been around for at least thirty five minutes now, and you haven't incorporated that into your class. So I'm kind of saying to be, but well you know, actually maybe even just do PowerPoints a little bit better and but that's why I like that whole idea of technology enhanced learning because I think the term e-learning or online learning presupposes that was something done separate and distinct from the mainstays where technology enhanced learning is for everybody everybody, you know as I said you don't have to in, insert a hyperlink into your PowerPoint bang, that's technology enhanced learning and, and it, it's that basis so I'm working on the ninety ten, trying to encourage people to, to take into that space for their regular teaching but I suppose also the like Gall College is always looking to, to provide more access so we are trying to encourage people to sort of look at their courses again, redesign them in terms of taking them into the blended online online space. But as I said, I think I've often described myself as a critical technophile in the sense that I do like what it offers and I really do, but I don't like this sort of worshipping at the altar of technology. What does it do? I don't know, but it's shiny and new. And as I said, stuff like machine learning and AI and VR, I see it, I do get it. But sometimes I hear people talking and you kind of go, hang on, the majority of, of, of people in the edtech community are working with people who are half a step away from acetates and overhead projectors. There's no point in just end, we're just sort of talking as an echo chamber. Oh, I think what you're doing is wonderful. No, Tom, what you're doing is wonderful. Meanwhile, 80 or 90% of the staff can't press a button. My father, Lord Mercy, I'm used to think if he pressed the wrong button on a computer, he'd launch a preemptive strike on all that, and I think that's the reality for me. So I suppose technology enhanced learning in the
1: real sense. Yeah, you're trying to have that sort of more strategic approach to getting everyone into it, starting with that minimum first base as it were
0: let's all agree to all put our notes up on blackboard you know because you'll often see it there
1: that you know you won't have a, a
0: consistent departmental approach to stuff some people prefer dropbox or google doc i appreciate that some lecturers who are very technologically savvy and they'll use a lot of other things there but i'd be happy if people just use the announcements, put up content, basic sort of stuff like that and have that consistent use. And I think, like, for me, the thing about VLEs is not just a remote content repository but the L back into VLE. So, yes. you know, so, <laughs> yeah. sorry, yes, sorry. <laughs> okay, you put notes up, but you put up maybe a little commentary. Rather than just saying, here's three readings, what am I reading for? What am I supposed to be looking out for? You put up an announcement. Now you've made an RLO. It's not necessarily about creating some high-tech, you know, screen in capture software. You simply just Put you know, a Word document together with links to three readings or three videos, which you put a narrative, now it's an RLO. When I'm working with people, like that's my sort of attitude. They think, oh, I have to master X, Y, and Z. PowerPoint is a very powerful tool. Word is. You know, you get a PDF document and you put in, like, sort of the yellow highlighter and put in a commentary. You've made an RLO. That's what it's about. And as I said, if we just end up in the edtech community, all just sort of self-congratulating each other. so oh, you're wonderful. The people on the periphery are going to go, yeah but there's no point in speaking to the converter so uh, yeah as you can see it's low tech open access stuff like that we can use so are very low cost i mean let will talk about brands here or i like strange hastomatic yeah yeah you know 48 dollars a year and they get the pro standard and stuff like that yeah. but thing is like a lot of the stuff you can get the free versions so people can see it, dip their toe in the water and take it from there. I think screen capture software has gone down very well in the sense that um you know you say to someone, Are you giving the same instructions over and over again? Okay, put up a PowerPoint, put your voice over, record it, now you've made a 40-50 second video and you know, people are not going to learn articulate story or presenter or article, but let's do something that we can we can manage. I get very
1: evangelical about some of this stuff. So it I does think. sound as though you're very passionate about this actually. I,
0: I am, <laughs> but but I suppose that Thing about it is like when I'm talking to colleagues, one I'm not a computer person or anything like that. So you don't want someone who's so adept with technology that the other people can go, ah, yeah, but it's easy for you, Tom, because you're in that space like that. And and I suppose that's the thing where and so to say that there's no point in showing off like that I don't mean showing off that's not a wrong or right word, but we have to remember that people have genuine fears and they're really afraid of stuff I think another big thing which has really changed the whole edtech world in terms of getting people to convert their material is stuff like copyright you know a lot of people were sort of using videos and links and images and when it's just within the private constraints of your class, it probably didn't matter too much. But people have real fears now about, oh my God, what's what have I been using for years? And I think that's another issue. Hello. so i think that's what we, we we need to sort of think about there like that that kind of fears of people
1: mm, i mean you yeah. have to start from there so you're so you're someone that people can relate to you you sort of set minimum not minimum standards but you have like certain things which you want people to do like easy quick like things that they can get started with yeah
0: i um, i think as well if, if you go away i think my dog is barking there uh so <laughs> pauses for a second and i'll close the door
1: yeah it's fine well we'll I just leave I it recorded like, we'll leave it recorded <laughs> I'm stop pause here. Excellent.
0: The digital dog.
1: The bottom line is about establishing relationships.
0: That's the whole thing there, that the people can relate to it and not make them feel inept or foolish or, or something like that. Because for a lot of people, very, very good teachers for many, many years, and it has worked for, for them in many, many ways. I, some of the other ways I sort of sell it to people is kind of working smarter, not harder. I quite like turning it in. or refuse to call it plagiarism detection, because you're where the plagiarism detector. It's just similarity. But I think there's some great feedback features on it. I think particularly I like the three-minute audio as it creates that nice idea of no matter how well you write feedback it can come across quite harsh or you know sometimes the tone is not set so i like the treatment people often like the quick marks so you know not only do i just sort of put in the quick mark but i'll try and put in stuff like a link to a youtube video or you might find this video useful to help you paraphrase or something like that and once you've done it you have your quick mark set set up oh, so my argument well, a lot of people will be instead of having the time to do it i said well you're having the time not to learn because once you have it you play a right way with it and then rubrics makes things easier like that so i think if you can sell it to people that's useful to them the other thing a lot what I'm talking about is not just necessarily just what I teach really just friends with a lot of people in the Irish EdTech community so be the similar sort of issues there is that sometimes there's a fear of oh, what, another version this year I think you know oh we're getting a new VLE or I have to learn x y and z and I'm only just getting this and it's just to appreciate it is a real fear for people you know, I think a lot of people in in academic world, teachers are, ideas, everybody, everybody's working harder now. They're working longer than hours than used to be and large, So when you feel it's something else, unless it's so, one level you could sort of turn and say, oh yes, there's a pedagogical imperative. And that's certainly laudable. But if you yeah. can also sell it to people that don't, you know, this actually might help you. Or yeah, if you sell it purely from a pedagogical perspective, that mightn't be the deal breaker for, for someone who has hundreds of students and is trying to do marketing. And I think stuff like, for me, uh, you know, stuff like in and PowerPoint is my sort of gateway into getting people to do more things like that
1: sounds as though you really sort of get to know who you're uh, helping it like getting to know who you, who you want to, like their sort of needs, if you like.
0: Yeah. Like when someone will, will say teach their first online class, we use Blackboard Collaborate Ultra, but it's Zoom or Big Blue Button. They're all essentially the same. But I'll sit down, you know, with the person beforehand and we'll sort of help maybe plan out the, the class because I think material that works for a face to face class doesn't necessarily work for a live online class. Even little things like, and it might be a major thing, but for example, instead of using say three or four bullet points, I will always say, will you put in A, B, C, D or E? So it's at least on the fly you could do a poll Collaborate ultra will actually have A, B, C, D e. so instead of just listing five bullet points with I don't know the five elements of or the five factors you can do it on the fly and kind of go um, people want to vote here which element did you find the strongest you know just had you, instead of using a bullet point you at least have A, B, C, D, E and it just changes the dynamic it might sound a big thing but you're just trying to use the stuff a little bit more to try and encourage people I mean you and I are used to this so we're quite comfortable with this this environment you know I mean you and I are chatting as if we're chatting but for people who are not used to it. It's a very strange atmosphere and I think sometimes people think rather than just chatting away and, and that's strange for people if they're not used to, to that. So even just sort of really sitting there out of camera shot, saying it's okay, it's okay to chat and, and stuff so, and giving them little tips about you know, even stuff like I mightn't sound a big thing but use the timer rather than say something vague okay, I'm going to pose a question I want you to take two or three minutes put up the timer and say three minutes yeah. and then people know exactly. Once again, it doesn't sound a big thing and it's the, it's the devil's in the detail and that's the thing which makes life a little bit easier. So I'm sort of saying just plan out your session because you know, you can to a certain degree turn up face to face and do it not on the hoof I don't want to sound like that but I think you'd certainly need more preparation for a live synchronous class if you want to make it genuinely engaging I mean anybody can talk at the camera for 45 minutes my argument there would be why did you make me log in live I could have just watched the recording like unless there's added value to you doing a live class just do a recording get up at 5 in the morning or 6 whatever suits you do a recording and say good luck and that's fine but let's be honest about it. don't call it a synchronous class and then do a BBC TV or Dr. WC but it's just doing a TV programme. As I said, there's nothing inherently wrong in the recording, but don't do a recording passing it off as a class. Yeah, make it active. I, I appreciate sometimes you know it can be a disaster giving the mic over to people. But if you just think about that, and I would sort of say to try and do something at least every six or seven minutes. Even if it's only raise your hand, vote yes. Can you all hear me? Are you all happy before they move on to and even stuff like having your lecture clearly with section slides? A lot of people do PowerPoints, but don't have a section. Okay, we're now going to move on to section four. Before I move on to section four, can I just get a vote if people are happy? It mightn't sound much, but at least, it, and I will actually call someone out. So I'll say, you know, Pip, uh, you can't hear me here. I don't see your hand up. So these people know I'm watching. The more for me that people think, oh, this guy is valuing my participation. My hand is up.
1: <laughs> Get into the naughty corner. <laughs> oh great <laughs> <laughs> so how much sort of success have you had because you've got some good tips there how much success have you had with getting all of these things like these good tools the rubrics and stuff like that uh, using quizzes and active learning how much success have you had That's a, it's a hard one to
0: kind of answer you kind of don't like going off. I do, I do <laughs> think I've been reasonably successful like, there's always going to be a number of people who would have engaged with technology enhanced learning whether we were there or not they just naturally inquisitive. but no I would certainly see and I'd see some departments have actually taken a step to actually you know, at least take on board you know for nothing else that the whole department will use blackboard and they will use 200 in and you know so i've actually seen like departments actually take on stuff but also individually cpd sessions turning up regularly the numbers have regularly risen like that so feedback will get very positive small steps like that it was funny actually i was doing a session just technology enhanced learning and i asked about 30 people in the room i asked how many people here would you consider that you use technology enhanced learning about two or three put their hands up and then i asked them Does nobody use powerpoint so uh, so as I said, like I just, and the idea, I suppose, is just sort of said, look, at the end of the session, you'll be able to do X, Y, or Z, and that sort of stuff like that. I think though, when I sort of do sessions, the idea is to sort of to direct people towards the training and the instructional designers do brilliant work done training, but we've also done a lot more online resources that people can work through. And when I'm doing the sessions now, I don't do training per se. And I say to people, look, the instructional designers will do more specific. I'm just showing you ideas. So if people can get an idea of how you can use it, then they will want to learn it. Simply just teach teaching the how, you have to do the why first, and, and that's tricky because sometimes some people might go away a little bit disappointed, expecting that they would know, Well, oh, how do I set this up? And I say, well, we'll do that another day. This is just giving you ideas. A two-hour session is more of a taster and a flavor. But no, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy. And I think we've just uh, just overseen the design of an MA in learning and teaching. Um, design is very much in line with what I've tried to encapsulate for, for years. One of the things, for example, is a huge uh, emphasis on open education resources, uh, all online. Because sometimes what happens is you have these really good courses and they're written. They'll say, oh, this will be innovative and blah, 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 and all of this. And then you actually read, the entire reading list, you have to physically drive into a library. The idea hopefully is an articulate right, But the idea is a real genuine blend because sometimes what happens, I think blended learning is one of the most abused and misunderstood words. When do you use it? What's the... Pr- Percentage. You know, if you're doing face to face, what are you doing face? So I think for me personally, this this new MA brought together. So it's a big package in terms of bringing this stuff together, and hopefully then some of the modules will actually teach people in terms of technology enhanced learning. But even like another module with uh, teaching for diversity, but universal design. Universal design is just good design. It's just good design principle. I think there's often a misnomer something to do with disability or something. And I, so and I think the college generally moving towards uh, sort of a, a, an understanding where technology enhanced learning, online learning, whatever term is is increasingly a mainstream part of what we do. As Many colleges are moving that way. It's not something that's separate or diverse. I mean, sometimes someone will come up and say, Oh Tom, I done this or I done that. And I, I get a kick out of it. the idea that you should go away feeling better about yourself and and to validate what you're doing anyway. Cause sometimes people say, Oh, so what I was doing was, Oh yeah, I
1: have a fancy name for it, but essentially yeah, you even
0: doing flipped classroom for years, even though you didn't know that.
1: Yeah, so it's just like you said, I identifying it and then people, oh, you are you are doing a good job, you know, you you're sort yeah. of doing what we need to do here. So yeah, yeah, oh, sounds good. Now Tom, you've mentioned open access and open education resources a few times actually. And I noticed on your blog you've got a, a post about an article that you're you're working on mm-hmm. um, about journals, open access journals, um, yeah. and the bronze publishing.
0: Yeah, myself, uh, Eamon Costlow in the National Institute of Digital Learning, DCU, and uh, another uh, pal of mine, Tony Murphy in Dublin Business School. We're very interested in the whole idea of, of of open access publishing. Once again, though, I think what we started doing we have a paper under consi- well, we've been we've been told we've been accepted, but I'm not saying where it's accepted. It's gonna be good if we get it out there about open access uh, publishing, gold in in, in particular, and suppose particularly if. And of like the Plan S from the EU, and then the idea that everything, all publicly funded research, will be freely available. The problem with that is, once again, open is another sort of misused or abused word like that. Like for example, you've a lot of, and we're particularly looking at APCs and the author of processing charges. So yeah, we, we you can have gold open access, which you pay is three thousand two hundred dollars. I think what happens there, you end up with a, a journal which gives the appearance that it supports open access. It does at a at a, at a hell of a price like that, and I mean, what I think is, is is gas with the whole publishing model is that you or I write a paper, we submit it to a journal. We don't get paid a penny for it. The people who reviewed it don't get paid a penny. And in many cases, I did the editor, and then my students, in order to read my paper, then have to uh, pay, and well, what the college has to pay for it, like that. So we start doing a lot of work on that. But as a, as a part of that, we manually searched seven and a half thousand journal papers last summer. My wife was really impressed with how I spent. But one thing which came apparent was that there was a lot of bronze open access. In other words, that another name for free papers and i and up a good good paper about it like that called about Furay I think it was a, in Roman times it was a counterfeit or a cheap version of a coin uh, he used that analogy so what happens is you know it looks like oh this is great I came across entire issues of a journal you know 13, 14 papers and they're all free but the problem is that you're calling it open but if you go and track it there you know three months later six months later it's gone so if you're going to use stuff as, a, as a, an open access or an OER it's not much use so as I in the blog published it there in the last couple of days, we found a, I found 161 journal papers, and that was last September. It had gone down to 139, then about 98. As of last week, then it was 40 odd papers. So, as I said, like open sounds inherently good, and free and open, what's the difference? It sounds great. And that's I suppose it was just sort of alerting people and just sort of deconstructing and asking people to, I suppose, or beware. But I am committed to the whole open movement like that. One of the things, though, and, and uh, I think we need to sort of be quite clear in, in the sense that. Open, I think, is inherently good. The problem is someone is paying somewhere. Myself and Eamon, uh, along with a colleague, Fiona Concannon and NUIG, are the editors of the Irish Learning Technology Association, the, sort of the, the sister of ALT in Ireland. And we would be the editors of the journal. But like, we have to pay a couple of thousand a year to OJS for hosting services. We give our time, the reviewers, and we're not for money. But the point is that you know, if we're going to have a, an honest conversation about open access, we need to sort of say, open costs, someone somewhere is paying. And I think, I can't remember where that. Like, came across about someone saying and the whole thing about uh, on foot of uh, Cambridge Analytica and so if you're not paying for the product you are the product and uh, as I said like it's you can present something as inherently good not that it's not good but I think we need to have conversations about how sustainable some of those models are and also then I think just in terms of it being sustainable it's about getting the acknowledgement because people look for promotion or for tenure for grants and stuff and sadly what still counts is you know a journal read by three men an elderly woman and a dog and that sort of idea where you could have a blog which is read by thousands of people or you know, if you publish in an open access journal I mean the Eurus Journal of Technology Enhanced Learning the alt journal they are genuinely free and open like that um, but sometimes you have people in the senior academic position they're a bit snippy it's like quality of the course they're quality they're peer reviewed payment alone doesn't guarantee quality but really committed to the open education movement and open education practice. But I think people need proper credit and acknowledgement, not necessarily one aspect of it. Mm. Like if they're going to do it, it should be valued and not just a certain very narrow view of what constitutes quality publication. Yeah,
1: the sort of the whole impact factor thing and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, you know, whoever if so and so publishes in it, then I've got to publish in it kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and, and become but it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy because once a journal has a high impact factor, every, everything will be drawn to to it and drove, driven to it like that, so it, it, it sort of becomes perpetuating. So perpetuate. And that's not to say it's not good quality stuff in it like that. One of the things we're looking at there is, as I said, that you have someone there, particularly say a, 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 an early career researcher. They don't have the money for APC so they could have actually done research about open education practices, but they didn't have to publish it in a journal, which is is a paywall. But as I said, people are are, are forced because uh, in 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 the research that we done, uh, we found that the average APC was three thousand two hundred dollars. So it's not insignificant to, to sort of uh, and as I said then if somebody then is trying to publish in an open and I mean as I said you just I don't know if you saw but the erodal Athabasca uh, journal they had to put an embargo six seven eight months because they're just so snowed under because as I said like it's when you do have an, a genuinely open access journal which does have a high impact factor then it's going to channel a lot of stuff in there so as I said I think people are, are left with a, with a choice in terms of do we want to get this published do we want to get my, my name out there and I I suppose when you are an Audrey Waters or someone like that yes you can write blogs because you're you know, you're a rockstar Tom Farley not so much I don't know what sort of traffic is going to my blog maybe a bit more after the podcast but uh, absolutely most the people who sit in judgment and not just me joking so but the people who are going for promote a lot of the people who sit in judgment of other people they're not necessarily in that blog space or that idea of openness so what they value is what they they become accustomed to and and thinking those those terms. I think I think EdTech offers massive Massive opportunities for people to get their their, their information out there, in the world. and even like that 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 latest blog about the Bronze Open Act. We could submit a paper, and it might be published till next year. So even forget about Open Act, just getting the paper out there. But at least this way, the the figures are out there, and you can get that space. You can get it out there much quicker. I think that's something that I really do love about getting into that that space.
1: Oh, definitely, yeah. It's a good way to just get the message across, isn't it? Like, and not even just beyond the the ad tech community. Um, yeah. Sort of yeah. in the media and stuff. yeah, yeah um, Just to clarify these.
0: And I suppose it is the ultimate peer review because there's nothing to stop any of you there in the world sort of saying, getting onto the comments and say, Tom, this is a load of rubbish, or yeah, you need to consider this. So it's the ultimate in peer review if we talk about sort of you know collective learning and and and, and make an impact. You know, what's an impact factor? You we know, are one point seven four or four hundred comments and eight hundred views everything that matters we can't always count and everything we count doesn't always matter
1: yes <laughs> do, do you know the you're talking about the bronze open ac- uh, the bronze article so did they appear? an APC they, they don't care.
0: no APC. no it's it's APC. free. but the thing is that the publisher decides to make it free this yeah. whole issue is free but it's it's it can be withdrawn at any particular time yeah okay so as it's I said we, really we open. I think we went from 161 to something like 42 so you're talking like a 75 percent drop where and the author has no I, I thought it was interesting I mean and this will be in the, in the in the full proper paper but one one journal which shall remain nameless but uh, they had an issue and there was 14 articles in, in that particular issue 13 were free and and one was gold open access. So I was wondering, the person who published that paper as gold, they had paid over $3,000 and then they saw 13 other papers for free. But actually, subsequently, that issue had now gone to behind the paywall. But Obviously, the gold open access is still there. You know, it's yeah. quite arbitrary. Some journals, I wonder what some of them did, you know, did they do it as a lost leader in the sense that, you know, they sort of draw traffic in because, you know, there's a lot of studies have indicated that, you know, when stuff is open or freely available, obviously it draws a a lot of traffic into so they might do it as a, as a lot it's like you know the smell of fresh bread as you walk
1: in, yes you know. spe- special offer journal <laughs> issue special <laughs> offer, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's weird it's weird isn't it it'd be like the FT or something just saying oh yeah we're just gonna have a free month or yeah. like, the, the Guardian just suddenly charging um or something like that yeah, it's, yeah. so uh, what, it's what we done
0: was we we, you know, we went into the, the, the rankings and looked at the top just the top 30 and I suppose maybe I watched too much at the top of the pops why I picked 30 or not 40 or 20 I don't know but but it's about, about half of the the, the journals had free articles. The other, the other half didn't have any free articles anyway like that, so it wasn't it wasn't an issue? But no, as I said, can like, I, I think you know people don't necessarily tease out the difference between free and open, and are just calling it bronze open because like there's gold and platinum and there's all sorts of different permutations. So it was well, even when someone wants to have this this commitment to open in a sort of abstract sense, there's a lot of stuff going on that you need to be quite sure about. At least you're going to make a decision, make an informed decision, and then you can decide what you want to do. And uh, but like one of the the, the things that we, come across in in a lot of the background reading for was going back to the EU's plan S, this idea that everything should be. So what's happened now is a lot of grant applications, when they put it in, they put in for the APC. So the EU wants everybody to make publicly funded research freely available. So they do that by giving you a grant, which also includes the APC. So they're actually paying twice almost. You know, I, I don't think it's certainly in the spirit of things and in that sense. That I don't think that's what they intended. But uh, publishers have a, have a, have a huge uh, huge game, uh, the huge sort of stakes in the game like that. And But I'll say I, I also do think that those in editions of of Power in academia then also need to kind of pay. they have forced people into that situation where if people want to get tenure, want to get promotion want to get on, they they have to play a game where you're billions in revenue. I say so the college is now paying the same publisher who's actually give nothing for your paper. I thought the University of California system was very good today. You know, put down a, a and said no, enough is enough, and I thought that was that was interesting. So, but yeah, it's uh, quite brave of them to do that. It was very very brave. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, some of the publishers are just. I mean, the sort of the profit margins they make are eye water but I mean if you think about it I mean can you imagine like getting a you know, uh, builder to build your wall and they come in they build the wall do a lovely job and then you actually say to them uh, no I'm not going to pay you but I'll tell you what I'll do I'll I- I let you the privilege of building me a wall uh, I will tell people that you built the wall if you give me £3,000 I'll put your name on pleasure of knowing I know I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek but it's actually what are the business model gets highly intelligent people to walk for
1: free and uh yeah, to get it published yeah yeah. And then the libraries have to pay again. And the yeah. libraries have to pay. You,
0: you know, I mean I love this type of thing, you know, you can rent this article for like, you know, seven million pounds or dollars for for twenty four hours. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. We need a sort of academic Napster. So
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I suppose there are ways and means. Uh, yeah, but
0: I mean, <laughs> if you look at right their, there, I think academia.edu or ResearchGate, I, can't, I haven't got any notes here to hand, but like, they, they may take down something 40% of their, I think it was ResearchGate, but may take down 40% of a lot of their papers. The other side of it is, I think people actually often have a bit more latitude than they realise. Green Open Access will allow you like pre print versions or pre-copyright versions of your papers. Stuff like that. But once again, I think what happens is like, you know, people are so desperate to get published and they just sign away and say, yeah, click did you do sign away. I, w- I got into the you know earwax month carving journal of the month, so I, I'm delighted it's a tough gig.
1: Yeah, I can imagine it's yeah. uh yeah it's, it's quite a like you said, it's an issue and it, it's good that you're you're looking at you know you're doing that research because it is sure a big thing for everyone. It's not just the our community, it's the whole oh, of the academic community yeah, worldwide. Yeah,
0: yeah. I suppose no it's not just our community I suppose it I suppose it impacts it. Well, in the sense that we are the people who can help facilitate, in the sense that you know, I don't say we're the guardians or anything like that, but you know, I suppose like if you're from another discipline, you're you're not necessarily a fay okay with this war or these options. And I'm not I dare to go as far as to say it's almost beholden on our community to to really to to, to, to be more clear about it and, and, and have that active discussion. Because I was we are in that space. I don't know if that's sounding a bit pompous about the community, but I I I think as a discipline, as, as, a, as, a, as a community, I think we should be at like the vanguard of discussions around. Oh, uh, Interestingly enough, as I said, it's been the hard scientists who, who started it all off like that. So. But I think as I said, certainly as technology has improved, it's become far easier to get your message out and get published. But as I said, until as a such time that people in power genuinely acknowledge and right, giving your stuff away. So just, I mean, I'm, I'm a publicly paid employee. I'm paid by the government, you know, so I think my stuff there um, should be freely available. As I said, I, think it's, I don't think it's any that insightful anyway. <laughs> so, so so but I think if I have stuff to get it out, just get it out there.
1: Absolutely. And at least if people want to use it, they can do it with the copyright intact, you know. That's the other thing. Um But
0: well, Creative Commons allows that, you know, you're looking mm-hmm. for is it. just acknowledgments, see you know, so BY just just be acknowledged and that's it there like that. You know, I don't think anybody will be making millions off my PowerPoint slides available on SlideShare, but they're very welcome to some <laughs> Some was saying one time they were talking about, like don't know about sharing my lecture notes. And, you know, it's not proprietary work. I said, I don't think you invented Marx. Yeah,
1: <laughs> absolutely. You wrote interpretation. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Well, um, so people should check out your blog for more information on that. Yeah, um, we'll put the, a link in the in the show note. Um, so that's the questions for me. The The ALT ALT Mentions mentions podcast. Podcast. Listen to Neil and Pip. We talk learning technology.